welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hello, and welcome to this edition of On the Record, brought to you by Klausner Home Furnishings, the leading solutions provider for the home furnishings industry. Now, here's your host, Bill McLaughlin. My guest this week on On the Record is Steve Riley, former director of furniture and flooring at Nebraska Furniture Mart, and now the president of Riley Consulting Group. Steve, thanks for joining us here. Thank you. So you've been retired for a little over a year now? A year and a half. Yes. There you go. How are you enjoying, and I say this in air quotes because you've been busy. I retired June 28th and in September I said I can't do this anymore and I went to the October market cold and I just started walking through other showrooms and you've known me for a long time, you know, and Irv and I were really good business partners and I could go into any showroom I want and I just started to pick up business. There you go. So it kind of catapulted a little bit. And I'm very happy about it. But I'm working the hours I want to work. So, and, it, and my wife is very happy that I'm working. <laughs> I want to talk to you a little bit about your career because you kind of grew up in the May organization mm-hmm. and they are legendary for the training that they did and the way that they educated their buyers. Tell me a little bit about what that was like and some of the things that they taught you as you were coming up in the business. Well, I never would have gotten where I am without May Company training. They were the best. I used to. I worked for Higby's, which is now Dillard's, for two years. And then May Company called me and said, are you still interested in coming over here from two years ago? And I said, yes. They said, well, we have your name from somebody. So I said, I'm going to May Company because they're bigger, more opportunity. Um, so I was an, an assistant buyer, and I worked for a buyer for about a year. And they teach you about merchandising. They teach you about price point analysis. They teach you about um, store count and what works in what stores, what doesn't work in stores, assortment planning, uh, vendor matrixes. And then I became a buyer and I bought all of bedroom and dining room and design gallery at that time. This is back in 1980, 81, no, 80. And I, I worked there for three or four years. And then I became the broad and area rug buyer. And from there I became the electronics buyer and I was doing so much business, they told me to slow it down because I was ruining the store margins. <laughs> well, what I did to be successful myself, and then I'll tell you what May Company did, is when I got a new area, the first thing I did is I went to the stores and talked to the lead salespeople. And that's what helped my success. And the person, when I got uh, flooring, they bought area rugs and Broadloom. Well, they did a lot of business in Broadloom and they only did a few hundred thousand area rugs. So within two years, we were doing $2 million in area rugs, and I maintained the Broadland business. But it was from talking to the salespeople, what do you want, what do you need, and shopping other showrooms, not just the showrooms that we did business with. And then um, I became electronic buyer, I did the same thing, and they had a graduated scale commission, 2468, and the higher the commission was based on the higher the markup. So I did the same thing with them, and they're saying, well, you, they're buying all this cheap stuff. What about this? What about it? So I started stepping them up and stepping them up and stepping them up. And the next thing I know, I'm an assistant store manager because at that time that was a step to become a DMM. And when you're a DMM, you know, then I had several areas of responsibility. They moved me to Denver. And then from Denver, I was there for three years. They were merging with Foley's. 
I didn't want to go to Texas. So May Merchandising asked me if I want to come to New York and work with them, knowing that I was going to go to St. Louis. So I became the furniture merchandise manager, and I worked with eight divisions on the steering committees, setting up product lines with all the vendors for all the stores. And then from there, I went to St. Louis. I only lasted on that job about a year, and they made me the merchandise manager of furniture and electronics and mattresses and flooring uh, at Famous Bar, and I was there. And then they gave me luggage and some other things for 10 years. And I had a, uh, I had a divorce, so I had a, a non-relocate. And then when my daughter was in high school, I asked her about it. I, I took it out of my claws, and within 60 days, I was working in California as a senior vice president of textiles. Mm. But the training that I had was unbelievable. I mean, they did everything. They did, um, they would show you how to work with your people, and they called it Q1, Q2, Q3, and Q4. So Q1 was, you know, the, the guy that's going to demand, demand, demand. Q2 is they pull back. Q3 is just wants to be the friendly person, and Q4 is you can be friendly, but you need to teach, you need to lead. Well, we actually did video role plays with the, with the merchandise managers on how to train buyers. And then they'd play it back, and you'd see where you were missing something or where you overdid it, and that was just part of it. And then people development was the number two thing on our reviews. It went sales, people development, and then gross margin. And then we also, for our associates, including myself, we had what they call EDRs, mm -hmm. Executive Development Reviews. So it was certain characteristics like listens to learn or you know analysis and all these things that we worked on. So we picked, they showed us our strongest points and our weakest points. They said build on these two strong points and then build on this weakness. And that, that happened, so that was unbelievable. You know, and this was constant. And then they had, you know, you, you went through a series of tests, eight hours, from anywhere from analytics to math, the comprehensiveness, and then teaching to those things. So within my, I think with my second year, as a, no, my first year as a DMM, second year, I guess. Well, they had a DMM school. So all the new DMMs flew into St. Louis and met with Dave Farrell, who was the chairman of All of May Company, and his staff, and it was seven days. And we had, he picked certain areas strategically, so there would be like five, DM, five DMMs in, at this table. He'd give the business plan to the one person who was the specialist in that area, like ours was women's shoes. Okay. But I'm home, and this other person just something else, ready to wear. Well, we had to do a business plan and develop it. And I mean, we worked from 7.30 in the morning till 11 o'clock at night. And then we had to present the plan to Dave Farrell and his team. You know, and I looked up and I could see this person's copiously taking notes. And he's also got a picture card, you know, with everybody's picture on it. So they're finding, they're seeing who's interacting, who's not interacting, who's speaking up, asking questions. And if you had a good business plan, it was great. If you had a bad business plan for the person who was the specialist in the area, it was not so great. So we did that for literally a week. And then we got to go home and three years later we went to a refresher course, but it was a three-day course. Same thing. So this was constant throughout my career. And then, um, you know, I worked intimately with the HR people on people development skills and how to develop people. And 
my biggest thing is I, I was pretty good at recognizing talent or not talent, but I entrenched myself into the businesses where I was the DMM. You know, there's a lot of people that I've experienced in my lifetime that let the buyers run the show, which they are the buyers, but the boss should also be educated and know what they're doing and how they're orchestrating, because at the end of the day, it falls on the boss, it doesn't fall on the buyers as much. So tell me a little bit about how you recognize talent. What do you, what do you see in somebody that says, that's somebody I want to develop? Well, um, I found a young lady um, and she was in one of the stores. And I go and visit the stores frequently and I noticed her work ethic and I noticed how her department was ready every morning for business. There wasn't anything on the floor the shelves were filled, and I, you know, and I recognized a few of them like that. So I brought her in. I made a deal with my boss. I, they didn't have assistant buyers in in my latter position, and I said, "This girl is really good. I want to move her from Kansas City to Omaha, so we know what store I'm talking about." Uh -huh. I said, "I want to make her an assistant buyer." I said, "Okay, well, let's see. What, let's see what happens." So I brought her in. And I told her, here's the deal. I said, I guarantee you, I will make you a system buyer regardless if you prove yourself. Well, she did. So then she ended up being a youth buyer, and then she's the bedroom buyer, and now she's the, uh, the upholstery buyer, which is a huge job. Um, I found another person at a pro shop. Pro shop? Uh, getting my wife uh, golf clubs. His sales technique was unbelievable. He knew everything about the shop. And I gave him my business card, and I said, if you ever think about changing jobs, I want you to call me. So three years later, he calls me, he says, I need a job. I said, fill out the application, just take our test, I'm sure you're fine, you can start next week. So I brought him in as an assistant merchandiser, and then he was a merchandiser, and then he became the assistant buyer in betting, and then the betting buyer left and went back, to, back home to New York, I made him the betting buyer, he's still the betting buyer. So it's, it's things like that that just work, you know, and I had an excellent relationship with Herb Blumpkin, and you know, he trusted me implicitly as far as when, with people that I had selected. Mm -hmm. You know, and some, they didn't all work out, unfortunately. Some were just, one I brought in was disappointed, but they, it's very important to understand the culture of the business. And if you don't understand the culture, and that's not Nebraska, that's any of these stores out here right now. You've got to get the trust of the people and show them that you're, you know, you're willing to learn from them as much as you want to teach them. So that, that's really been very helpful. And um, I did a lot of recruiting at colleges. I recruited at Indiana University, uh, Colorado University, Purdue, um, USC. So a lot of these things that, you know, and they had career night and then they'd give you people to interview and the process that um, the May Company was, and I'm sorry to bounce back and forth, That's okay. but it just all pops back in my head, is we selected candidates that we thought would be good, candidates to be buyers and system buyers. So we brought them in, they took them on a tour and everything else, you know, it'd be probably 50, 60 people. And then we tag teamed them. So you two, you're going to meet with these two DMMs. You're going to meet, you two are going to meet with these guys. And at the end of the day, we'd get notes and we'd put on the board, yes, no. And we'd send them through one more series of interviews just to see, to make sure. 
So we hired some good people at it, some really good people. And I'll give you an example in a minute, but so what I learned is I ended up hiring one of the guys I interviewed with. And we were talking, and he knew I had to do it again. You know, they were, he goes, I gotta tell you something. I like it, and he goes, you scared the hell out of me. I didn't think I had a chance of getting a job at all. I said, why? He said, because you're so matter of fact and to the point, and you're this and this and this, and you were just drilling at this. And I learned from that. I had to loosen up. I had to smile more. I had to, you know, maybe throw a little joke in there or, you know, tell me more about yourself. And that helped me a lot in my further recruiting. And it's also when I worked wherever I worked, I made it a point to find out about the families and the friendships and everything that these people had. You know, and my wife was the same way. I mean, she was very supportive and she would meet some of these people, you know, if we'd see them out or things like that. But then, I, you know, they knew I cared and I did care. You know, I, I just received a text from that upholstery girl I told you about, Diane and I both about, I would say a month ago, saying, I'm pregnant, I'm gonna have a girl. She's due in May, you know, and it was exciting because she knew I cared and they had been trying, but I didn't, you know, I never asked because you don't want to ask them. Right. But it's things like that. Or I see them in the hallway, they give me a big hug. Or I, I walked into uh, Intercon showroom at Market in uh, High Point, North Carolina. All my buyers are sitting at this table, my ex buy all of them. And the rep comes, he said, well, I don't know if you want to go back there. Your, your ex buyers are back there. I'm like, why wouldn't I want to go back there? And it was like, we got a group picture, and it's great to see you. How's it going? How's Diane? How's your grandchild? You know, and I would ask them, and Diane's my wife. So sure. it was, it's that kind of thing. So I really, you know, enjoyed it. And when I went to Nebraska, I didn't just work with the buyers. I worked with guys in the dock. You know, I said, I had your job at one point in time, and you gained their trust and respect. I worked with the salespeople. I knew everybody's name. So it was just, you know, pressing the flesh, walking the floor, but just not walking the floor in the morning for the visual part of it. Mm -hmm. Walking the floor in the afternoon. What's going on? How's business? What do you think we need to do? Then I created a, a survey monkey. Uh -huh. So before we'd go to market, we'd ask them, what are your, what's the request? What do people want by category? And we take those lists to market and, you know, we try to find what they wanted and then we recap it when we did our final assortment and lineup plans and let them know what we bought and what was bought from those lists. So it really, you know, you engage people and you consistently engage people. And when I was at Maine Merchandising, I made it a point since I was with the other stores to meet most of the principals of most of the companies so that they knew who I was. So now when I'm working with some of these groups, you know, some of the uh, buying groups or stores I'm making sure they meet the principles. It's, it's good to know the reps, but that the principles are the decision makers with the owners. Right. So it's been very rewarding. And there's some people I can help a little bit, and there's some people I can help a lot. Now, you mentioned when you were made and teaching buyers, mm -hmm. teaching them how to do a price point analysis. What does that look like? Okay, so you would look at your business on the business plan. And I, I mentioned a vendor matrix. So you would list the vendors by store, and you, you know, categorize what, what vendors were in what store. Then you took it a step further and you did an assortment plan by price point. And then you looked at those price points and said, what percentage of the business is a $3.99 sofa up to what percentage is a $15.99 sofa? And they're not all gonna be the same, but you would see spikes. 
or you'd see gaps. Well, you know, you're, you're going from $4.99 to $7.99, or you only have a couple at $5.99. It's too hard to make the steps. So I was teaching them how to do steps and look at their advertising and look at how they're advertising their merchandise. And not just do sofa love, sofa love, sofa love. Do a row of sofas so that you can show depth of product and assortment. And, you know, marketing parts of it like that. I would do all the ad allocations at one point in my career by myself. I would, here's a 20 page book. I'd say, right, we're gonna do this much in living, we're gonna do this much in leather, we're gonna do this much in dining room, this much in bedroom. And then I go over what the numbers with them. I'm saying, this is the percent of totals, and this is how it pans out. And I did all the financial plans. So we would plan each category, but I, if it was a 4% increase for the furniture division, I didn't flatline it. I looked at the business that year and the year before, the prior year and the makeup and he had these reports that told you that and then looked at the turns and that's how I determined how to do the future plans. So for in October, we'd already be doing the spring plan. We did it by six months and it was a four five four calendar. So it was February through the end of you know, July and then, but we would have those plans six months out. So they would know way in advance. And then I did update meetings. Hope you're enjoying this edition of On the Record. This episode is brought to you by Klausner Home Furnishings, the leading solutions provider for the home furnishings industry. Once again, here is your host, Bill McLaughlin. We recorded this podcast at the Las Vegas market in an impromptu location. At some point, we had to change locations. So please enjoy part two of my sit down with Steve Riley. So we talked about price point analysis. Yeah. And when I would see some gaps or we didn't have the proper steps to get to the next level, we'd start looking for other vendors. And you need to, to really shop the market. And as I mentioned earlier, not just the vendors that you are comfortable with, mm-hmm. but other vendors. And I, you network. You network with other buyers from other divisions and say, what's working for you? What's not working for you? And FMG does a pretty good job of that. They do an advertising and a year uh, strategy at the uh, last day of the, the show for FMG, the symposium. And people show up there what works, what's not worked, or what's working for them and advertising techniques. But I use that as a networking thing. And I had, you know, I find out from my buyers, we need to go to this vendor, we need to go to that vendor. I still do it today, even though I don't work at Nebraska. I may be at another retailer that doesn't compete with them. I'll see something that's like, this would be really good at the Mart, and I'll send Irv a text. Say, you need to go look at this. So it's, you know, it's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And um, as far as back with the buying teams, with the advertising, I was trying to show them different ways to advertise. And when you do advertise a sofa with a cocktail table, line list the cocktail table and the end table. So kind of really show both pieces because occasional tables a lot of times are the most overlooked things in advertisement because people don't usually do the prices except when you look at some of these other um, Amazon or someone like that. So that was another part of the advertising and marketing, but also keeping track of how much you were advertising something. You know, different methods. I, I ran into an experience with one of my betting buyers that they ran a free box with S Company. Mm-hmm. Well, a month later, they ran a free box with X Company. It's like you're just muddying the waters and you're not making it important. Do the free box, do it any size, do something different. Don't you, and then work with your vendors and do a six month ad planner with each 
of the, the betting buy vendors so that you have a clear understanding of what you're advertising and when you're advertising it. And they do too. So and I kind of carried that forward with all the categories. So, you, so what you're saying is by having the same offering with two different, you kind of confuse the consumer. Right, because, or you're just doing the same ad. Okay. And they might just say, well, it's just another free box. So it takes the importance out of what, what you're getting. And you usually just try to stay with one vendor or two vendors. Mm -hmm. Because if you keep doing the same thing over and over, it's like, oh, it's the same old thing. You know, I, we tried things, you know, when the free, free TV was big. Well, a lesson learned with that is don't just show five sets with the free TV. Do it with the purchase. So if you purchase this amount of money, you get this size TV, you purchase this amount of money. So they can pick the sets that they want. Don't pigeonhole them into, these are the only six sets that you get the bonus with. And just kind of, and put those TVs throughout the store so that they, they understand. Or a simple thing like uh, ceiling fans. We had an area for ceiling fans. Mm -hmm. Well, we started to display them in living room groups. Not all of them, but over selected living room groups. It's free space. It's above you. And with the lighting, we did the same thing in the dining room department. We did chandeliers or lighting over the dining tables. It's, again, it's free space. Utilize the space. You know, and when I, when I get to that, then I start thinking about visual presentation. You know, and Irv and I worked very well together. And his, his motto, and I agree because I did it at where I came from, was I want the bride ready for the altar at 10 o'clock. Period. The end. What does that mean? I want the store to be pristine. So when a customer walks in the door, their first impression is like, wow, this is great. I mean, the, the, the holes in the wall aren't there. There's no chips. The carpet's clean. The rugs are straight. The, the cushions on the upholstery, you know, some of it with the welts, they smile. We had our display crews go by and straighten out all those smiles. So that, that didn't happen. You know, the, the fabric, the value packs were in the right place. All the tags were in the same position on all the, the furniture. Just little things like that. That's real but detail. detail. Well, and then I, de I developed with him a, a visual checklist so that all the stores had that. And the store managers had that and gave it to their visual managers. And, the, and it wasn't just the inside of the store. It was the outside of the store, too. Is there crack? Is there paint? Is something wrong with this? You know, are, am I looking in the window and I'm seeing the back of the furniture? You don't want to see the back of the furniture. And then when you're merchandising the floors, you don't want to put the back of the sofa on the aisle. You want to put the sofa there and let the customer walk into the sofa off the aisle. So kind of remove the barriers. So, and then utilize your wall space. And then we did several inspiration moments. So in a category killer store, you have all your upholstery and all your motion and you have, but inspiration pods throughout the store doing a room setting or just something crazy, just to grab the customer's eye. You know it's not gonna sell, but man, it gets their attention. You know, and then we really started to capitalize on accessories and accessory pods. I mean, you've been in the Texas store, it's a bazaar and it's cash and carry. And there's a lot of business, but we had a plan for replenishment. So we'd load up things in the, in the morning or we'd, load, we'd have everything loaded up in the morning because there was a list made the, the night before, the day before from the buyers. So that when the visual staff got to work in the morning, it was all ready to go and they were taking it out on the floor and redoing it. 
Now, if there was a hole on the floor from that before the buyers came down at 2.30 in the afternoon and, and re-looked at the floor again to make sure nothing was missed. And in the morning, the buyers still went on the floor again because they could have sold something off the floor overnight, but they had staged merchandise that they knew they could get right away. And especially in Dallas, it's easy because the warehouse was connected to the store and the same in Kansas City. You know, and it was just down a little bit up down the road for the Omaha store, but it's always those impressions when you walk into the store. And that's one of the things I've been trying to tell and telling the retailers that I do work with, it's first impressions. I said, just look at the carpet, look at the walls, look at the lights. Do I have all the lights and the track lines? Do they all work? Are they all pointing in the right direction because you changed the room group? You might be shining on the chair, you want to see the sofa. So what happens when you reset the floor, sometimes people forget to reset the lights. Exactly, exactly. Or they might not take the fabric rack with them that's supposed to go with that. And what, another thing that, that helps when you're, you refresh the floor is you might have a couple of groups that are doing okay but not really working great. So you move them and you see, well, maybe they're just getting missed or overlooked. You know, so that it's kind of a fresh look. It's the same merchandise, but it's moved. I walked into a showroom today with one of my customers and I said, what do you think of this, this group, this motion group? I said, take a look at it. She goes, well, I was in here today and the rep didn't even show it to me. I'm like, this is a hot group. Look at the price. Or I told her what the price was, but so she's going to buy it. You know, I just. How do you, that's a, that's a, you, you raise a really interesting question. If something's not doing well, sometimes you move it. How do, how long do you wait? How do you bring something in? You test it. You think it's going to work. How do you decide? Well, we have reports. Okay. So once it hits the floor, we look at it four weeks out. And then we look at it eight weeks out. Sometimes it doesn't make it to eight weeks. And you know just by what else is selling around it that that's, that needs to be replaced. But we also have alternate selections of things that we liked that we didn't buy but would fill the gap if something's not working. And then when we do lineups, and this is, this is May Company, this is anywhere I've, well, I've only worked two places, in the Nebraska Furniture Mart, Back to the price point analysis, we put a lineup on the board and say, we got this much at $3.99, we got this much at $5.99, et cetera. And then we had the sales of those items for the past six months by door. And then you'd say, well, we, let's, let's buy this item. And you'd look at it, well, the sales up here, this one's selling 80 a month, this one's selling 30 a month, and the one below it is selling 80 a month. Get rid of the 30 a month. Let's put this one in and try this one. And we did it in every category. So it's just a, a different way to, and then a certain percentage is transitional, a certain percentage is traditional, and a certain percentage is contemporary. And, you, and then some try some different things too, some crazy things. But, you know, I remember um, one of our researchers had the, the huge carved sofas with the diamonds and, you know, the faux diamonds in them and everything. We bought it and put it in one of our stores. We sold out of it in a week crazy but it's just you know don't be afraid to try things well that that raises an interesting question too do you buy what you like or do you buy what you think is going to sell and how do you figure out that line you i it is an interesting question and i didn't buy something just because i liked it i never did if i had a good feel based on what i know was selling in the territories then we put it up to a vote and we, there would be three or four of us in the room 
going over the lineups and making sure we had all the buy-in. And if we really felt strongly about it, maybe we should stock it in two colors, if that works. And then um, key to success is sales training, sales training, sales training. Have a vendor checklist. Have in the stores so that you know that those reps were in those stores. And then I would talk to the, the general sales managers of the different departments. Well, you're not really doing well with this. When's the last time you had a sales training? Well, you know, we, our schedule and this. I'm like, uh-uh. So I said, you need this person in here now. You've got to have sales training and you've got to stay on top of your sales training. You know, especially when you're doing special order business. That's key. You know, you have different fabric options, different arm options, uh, different finish options on dining rooms and bedrooms. You've got to make the sales associate comfortable with showing the customer those things and not just writing a sale. And it was a lot of that, a lot of, a lot of seminars. Sounds like training is really, really critical at uh, mm -hmm. just the, not only the buyer level, but also at that RSA level. Right. And when I was at May Department Stores, we used to have a... Uh, Semi-annual furniture sale. I'm sure you probably remember those. I do. We would go to Indiana, we'd go Illinois, we'd go St. Louis, and we would have seminars a month out with the key vendors and with the book. And we go over page by page of what we were going to do and how we were going to do it and, what, and how to present it with all the stores. And then we'd visit those stores. And it was hard. It was really hard in California when I had 76 stores because they weren't all in California. I mean, and a trip to San Diego would be five hours. So we might just see that twice a year, maybe three times a year, because it, you just can't spread yourself that thin. Sure. But that's why you have the, the visual managers in those stores. And um, the visual manager that we have had currently at my last position was unbelievable worked hand in hand with the accessory buyers and would create themes for each quarter and execute those themes in every store. I mean, it was you know, like Winter Haven or some, something like that. It wasn't, or we bought from another vendor, we bought some Tommy Bahama where we created the whole look, you know, or I think it was Pacific Jack or- Panama Jack? Yeah, Panama Jack. Oh, uh, we had the bike and we had the accessories around it just it draws the eyes to it. Let me ask you about when you talked about price point analysis, velocity versus margin. How do you balance the need for those two things? I mean, if, if you're all margin and no velocity, that probably I would think is not good. Right. If you're all velocity but no margin, right. also not good. So where is the sweet spot of balancing velocity you versus know margin? When you have your you're starting goods, you're going to make less margin because that's your most competitive. But as you step up the line in price point, the competition becomes a little bit less important because you're going to have things they don't have or you're going to have the surrounding cash to get to those steps and you can get a little bit more margin out of that. And then, of course, when you get to some areas, it's MSRP. So that is margin right there. It's built in, you know, and obviously there's been more of that lately. So that kind of helps balance the margin, but it's not like we just looked at it on a seasonal basis. We did monthly updates with our buyers and covered those points. Well, how do you decide though, how much of your, 
you know, if you're, if you're looking at the totality of your assortment, how much do you want at that more competitive high velocity spot? How much do you want at the higher margin? Is there a, is there a formula? Is there a, an There's analysis? That formula, but when you see how much things are working and then you shop your competition, which I didn't mention before, we actually did competitive shops and it was the buyer's job to do competitive shops in their marketplaces, all of them. And then it was the sales manager's job to do competitive shops as well. So then you understood what you were up against. Well, maybe I can get 10 or $20 more. Or the spread between a sofa love seat, it doesn't need to be $50. It could be $20 at retail. There's certain things you can do. And the same with the dresser, the mirror. You don't sell a lot of mirrors, so maybe you charge a little bit more for the mirror, or you're going to sell more beds. Maybe you're a hot price on the bed, but you'll get more out of the dresser and the chest. And that kind of helps the margin impact as well. Hmm. Let me talk to you about how, I mean, since we're sitting here at Las Vegas Market as we record this, how do you work a market? What's your pro plan before you go in? How do you work it when you're on the floor? And what's your post-market analysis look like? My plan when I go to market is I want to try to shop every floor in every building where it makes sense. Sometimes I'm not in the business. I don't do with, I don't do with accessories right? because there's certain people that do that much better than I do. But I, I would network before and I would find out some hot lines and then I do some window shopping. And then I, you know, I have a very open relationship with a lot of vendors. And I, I said, you don't need to tell me the prices I, I know what the prices are because I can do it in my head just looking at it or I can look at somebody's ad and know what their markup is. So I, I see what's hot out there. Like I mentioned to you today, you know, the lay flat is out there all over the place. You know, and then you see, oh my God, this one company is doing 435 for a dual power leather sofa container price. You know, and then you go to another one and it's 750, but the one is leather match and the other one's all leather. So it kind of varies. but. Um, or some people that I've worked with in the past, and, some, and not only just my current clients that I've worked with, but even when I was with Nebraska or, or May Company, I talked to other division and be like, well, have you looked at this line? They're hot. They're like, yeah, we did. I said, when? Maybe a year or so ago. You can't wait a year or so ago. I mean, I went into a, another, a resource in October because I, I missed a few because I get pulled in too many different directions sometimes. And this resource, they do bedroom, they do dining room, they do occasional, they do accent shares. Their looks have really changed. They're a moderate price resource. I would say 80% of their showroom is all mixable. That's a huge plus to a buyer. And the looks and the styles are great. And they're not, they're not geared to regional. They can. You can sell these groups in California, but you can sell this stuff in the Midwest, and this would work in the East Coast. So I make it a point to, to try to see as many different vendors as I can. I could use more days, but when I go to High Point, I'm there for seven days, and that's all I do is shop. You know, it just, you know, you know that they're going to have this designer brand or another designer brand, or I'll go to a resource that didn't want to sell us. You know, they made it a point that, well, we don't sell you. That's one of our selling features. I said, well, you don't really know us anymore. It works the same way. I said, when's the last time you were in one of our stores? About three years ago. I said, okay. I said, would you, would you mind walking me through the sales floor? So they took me through all four floors. And by the end of the meeting, he goes, 
and I was telling them what we sell and how we sell it and how much business we do and like I had no idea. So my greatest reward is when something like that I just found out talking to this company that they picked up this line and I talked to the rep and I said I want to thank you for taking the time to show me this stuff. And then they put it on the floor. He said, Steve, we went from zero to 60, and I can't tell you how fast. I should be thanking you. But, you know, when you see those success stories, it's great. You know, and it's happened in my past where my bosses hadn't been in a showroom in a while, and the buyers hadn't been in a showroom in a while. I'm like, you got to go see these guys. You got to see what they're up to and what they're doing, especially special order capabilities, too. You know, I know that sometimes that's the bad word. Well, you do value packs. So you show these products right here. And then that leads to another part of the vendor thing is you establish lead times with the vendors and you grade them on it. And you make sure they're up to task. You know, and you, you know, and you always get, well, this person's buying this and this person buying that. I'm like, really? I'm going to call them. Well, they said they were going to buy it. So, it, you know, but it's important to know what's going on in the business. You know, I could shop an accent furniture guy here, a reclaimed one, but let's look at this one and let's look at this one. Then I found one that's completely different, the same field, but they offer different products that the other ones don't offer. So it's just, you know, trying to feel your way through the market, look at what's hot, and just keep, make yourself aware of what's happening. You know, and, and different ways to merchandise it. I don't have any room on the floor. I said, well, take these groups, they're laminate, short rail them, put them in the back of the store. You, you can take up a lot less space. The customer who wants that merchandise is going to seek it out. So there's always room on the floor if you need to have space. Somehow, well, and that's the other thing, going back to the other question you asked me, they're not, you know, it's not, none of my children are ugly. Uh-uh, that doesn't work. You need to be on top of it. And you'll find a lot of times that probably 40% of your assortment is driving all your business. I mean, it's, sometimes it's 60, but... In certain cases, when they say, well, I don't have room to add this category, well, let's look at this big category. Let's see how this is working. You got room here. You need to cut some of this stuff out to at least try this category. Do you believe there should always be a portion of your assortment that's trying, that's just always recycling and is always kind of pushing the envelope? I would, yeah, I do. And it doesn't always work, but sometimes it does work. And then it spins off into something else. You know, and change out your assortments. Don't change them out yearly, annually. Change it out semi-annually. So keep the look fresh and be on top of it because, you know, every, every high point market or every Vegas market, there's something that's out there that's new. And if you wait a year, it doesn't happen. Now, however, because of the production cycles and everything going on now, a lot of things that are being at this market are not gonna be available till August. So you buy, you go through and you say, Okay, I might have missed some things from the last market. What were your best sellers that I missed? And they show you that. Mm. Or some of the alternates that I told you about, put them on your website. See how they do on the web. You might find a gem right there. Mm. What's your philosophy on being first in or not to a hot category? I've heard some people say it's better to be second in. Other people want to make sure they're first in. What's your, what's your view it on It depends on the security of the, the situation and the store. At Bay Company, they always wanted to be a fast second, but I always wanted to be first with the freshest, not last with the latest. So, and that was kind of a slogan that I had. So, <laughs> it just, it, you think about it though, it's true. If, you, if you're out there and you don't have the newest and greatest things, 
they're, they're not going to shop you, especially with the youth, you know, the young people, the millennials. They want what they want. Hmm. So you've been shopping since you retired. I think, what'd you take, two months off before you were back at the market? I lasted three months. Three whole months. Yeah. And um, I went to the market cold. So you obviously still look, you still care about product. You're actually helping people with I that. I have a deep passion for it. What's hot right now? When you, when you walk around the market, what do you see? What are the things that you think everybody should be really looking at? Motion. Motion is really hot. Uh, special order options on upholstery. You know, it's customization. Customization is becoming more, I'm seeing becoming more and more important. And then it's, it's also, I'm finding that some of the furniture manufacturers are realizing they need to have better accessorization of their showrooms or maybe they need to add tables or even possibly somebody else's tables. But I see that um, at this market, like I said, the, the uh, lay flats has been very important. Um, bedrooms, you're starting to see a little bit more into the lighter shades and some of them. So I, I just try to look for trends mm -hmm. and see, what, see what's out there. When you look at the future and trying to compete with Amazon, right? I mean. You look at stores like Nebraska Furniture Mart, assortment is their strength. They are right. just dominant in assortment, right? But when you have to compete against Amazon, it's hard to be more dominant than Amazon. How do, what's the future look like? Not just for Nebraska Furniture Mart, no, but, but, in, but in general anybody, of trying to compete. It goes back in, to what I said earlier. It's the in-store experience. Regardless, you know, there's certain things out. They're going to do the business, a cocktail table or something, that's glass and brass or whatever, and they buy it. But... If it's upholstery, don't you really want to sit on it and touch it and feel it? I mean, that's the biggest mistake I've seen in some people. They buy the sofa, they don't have to sit in it. I had somebody pitch me a line a couple of years ago, and he was young, he's new in the business. He said, this is a great sofa, it's leather, it's this. And I sat in it and I said, you sat in this sofa? Well, no. He said, come here, sit. What bottomed out? It's a $1,400 sofa at cost. I said, if you're gonna pitch something, you better know how it sits. You know, it's just a little fundamentals, or you were asking me about training buyers. Well, sit in it. If it's a KD chair, put your knee in it in the back and see if it racks or doesn't rack. If it, does it have full returns on a dresser? Do the drawers extend all the way? And sometimes they don't, be full extension, because, well, the tip over and everything else now, but they gotta open more than six inches. You know, so it's, look at things like that and I do that. Or when somebody has me working with them, I'll walk their floor and I'll pull drawers open and I'll say, you know, are you looking at this? You still have the hardware in here or the styrofoam or, you know. But it's that in-store experience that all the, the retailers have to keep. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, you know, you gotta be fresh and you gotta make a great impression and you gotta change it up. Don't have the same upholstery groups on the floor for three months in the same place. Maybe even change the whole lifestyle look. Shift it. You know, maybe you put room packages over here, and then you do all the better here, or you do, do get good, better, best through your store. You can start with the best in the back and go up to the front. However you think, depending on what that store is and the area around it, you could do either way. Great. So if you were going to give advice to a young furniture buyer, right? They come to you and they say, Mr. Riley, I, I think I'm gonna be real successful in the furniture business. 
what are the things that I really need to make sure that I do to make my career go forward? What, what advice you would you give? You have to pay attention to detail. You have to know your business like the back of your hand. You have to be involved. You have to build relationships with the vendors so that they have a trust in you and you have a trust in them. I mean, it, that's really key. It, they're the guys out there on the field, and that's what, why I say, ask them what their best sellers are. And I have an expression that I use when I go into a show, and I said, I don't want singles and doubles, I want triples and home runs, period, the end. If it's not selling or it's new and you're not sure, don't show it to me. Don't waste my time, don't waste your time. But stay on top of your vendors. Look at your vendors, look at what the product productivity is. Look at your damage rates. You know, are we having a lot of issues? Look at the shipping. Are they shipping on time or are they not shipping on time? Can they really get the merchandise to you? And you gotta, you gotta watch all those factors. Talk to your sales associates. Do they like this product? They don't like this product? And they're not always right. But you know, they, they have the ear of the customer. And once they know that they have your ear, that also helps because maybe they'll work a little harder and try to really find out, well, yeah, this is good, but we could, we could use this. You know, and look at the, the supporting cast. You know, are you selling countertops? Or are you selling regular dining height? Which one is selling better? What are the percentages? Stay on top of that and, and watch your categories that I mentioned earlier, traditional, transitional, contemporary. You know, and are you making that feel throughout the store? So you're not just doing it in a living room area. You're doing it in a bedroom area. You're doing it in a dining room area. You know, wherever it's applicable, the motion area. You know, now you're seeing a lot of motion out there that you don't know it's motion because that's what people are asking for. Or some of the features and benefits. I told you about the one, relax, refresh, and I forget the third one, but you know, it's lay flat, but it's, it's heat, it's massage, because that's what they want. Or another company that's realizing, I need a certain amount of recliners at this price, and then this price, and then this price, and they're available in these covers for these different ones. Hmm. Steve, thanks for taking the time. Thanks. I really appreciate it. I think people will learn a lot from this. Well, I haven't lost my passion whatsoever. I can guarantee you that. That is very obvious. And it's very satisfactory to me when I do help these people and they get a benefit out of it. And then they tell somebody else. There you but go. But I mean, I love it. When I can help somebody and I know I can do things for them and I can, you know, and I can just send them a two-page write-up of more detail as I showed you, I love it. I mean, I've been in this business for 40 years and both of my sons are now in the business. So, and they've been in it 10, 10 or 11 years. One works for Nebraska Furniture Mart, another one works for a key vendor. So, thank you. Thanks, and, thanks for the time and the opportunity. Yeah. My guest this week was Steve Riley. Steve, thanks for taking the time, and I hope people give you a call at Riley Consulting. <laughs> thank you very much, All Bill. right.